Well, hello everybody again. Welcome. So this morning we're going to kind of take a break from the book of Revelation because what we're doing now is we've finished the church age or the church dispensation and on your tables you've got a little handout there and it shows you the seven dispensations or the seven periods of time. We'll explain what that is as we go. But in the book of Revelation, as it goes forward from this point on, it actually goes chronologically through some chapters, but other chapters to explain who the character is or to explain what the concept is or the person or the event or the city or whatever. It goes back into the other parts of the Bible, like in the Old Testament, and refers to these things. So what I want to do today is actually give you an overview of the Bible, going right back to Genesis and going right to the end. So this is an overview of the scriptures, talking about the different ways that God relates to man. So it'll help us to put everything together when we actually do get into those more difficult chapters in Revelation. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us this opportunity. Lord, thank you for just making it so clear as we read your word. Everything's broken up nice and clear. You've helped us to understand what the truth is. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to teach us that truth and help us to understand it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is explain to you what the word dispensation means. So it's obvious that the church age is one age where God deals with the world through the church. But then there's the tribulation and the millennial reign where the church isn't there. And it's a different way of God relating to, to the world or relating to man. So let's have a look at what the word dispensation means. So generally speaking, the definition is a political, religious, or social system prevailing at a particular time. And in Christian theology, it's a divinely ordained system prevailing at a particular period of history. For example, the Mosaic dispensation when God gave the law to the nation of Israel. That's how God worked in the world. It was through the nation of Israel when he gave them the law. So just to give you a real-world example of dispensations, like a country might have been a democracy. That was a democracy dispensation. And then they got taken over and they became communist. So that was a communist dispensation or period of time. And then a king took over and now it's a monarchy. So it's a monarchy dispensation. Okay? So it's just a period of time characterized by a different type of rule. So in the Bible, it's periods of time characterized by different ways of God working with men. So here is the chart, which you've got in front of you. And the first dispensation is innocence, starting at creation and finishing the fall of man. And then conscience, starting with Cain and Abel, and finishing at the flood. And then after that you had human government, which finished at Babel. So I start with Noah, finish at Babel, Terra Babel. And then they have the next one is promise, and that started with Abraham, and God gave the promises to Abraham, and that continued until the law was given to Moses. 
And then the law period, the law dispensation, continued until Jesus came and died on the cross and established the church. So basically the day of Pentecost. And now we're in the dispensation called grace or the church age. And then there's a tribulation and following that is the kingdom years, the millennial kingdom, which is a thousand years. So before innocence, before creation, there's eternity past. And after the kingdom years, the millennial kingdom, there's eternity future. So if you look at this table, we're in the grace dispensation and we're getting really close, I believe, to where the church goes up in the rapture. So dispensationalism is the idea of breaking things up into time periods where God worked with people in different ways. So there's two primary distinctives or characteristics of interpreting the Bible this way. First, we take the Bible literally, especially Bible prophecy, and we have an understanding of Israel as being separate from the church in God's program. So Israel is Israel, and the church is a church, and the two are very different. God treats them separately. He has separate promises for the church and separate promises for Israel. And understanding these two things will go a long way to avoiding errors and false doctrines when we study the Bible. So I'm just going to explain what these two things are. So firstly, having this dispensational view of the Bible, it's a literal understanding of the Bible. And the literal understanding or interpretation gives each word the meaning it would commonly have in everyday usage. This makes sense, right? The literal meaning is the everyday meaning. Now, we do need to make allowances for symbols, figures of speech, and types. They're like poetry is not literal. But those metaphors and things, they have literal meaning behind it. Otherwise, they wouldn't mean anything. Okay? So the, the types, the metaphors, the figures of speech, the symbols, they all have a literal meaning behind them, otherwise they would be meaningless. So, for example, the sun, moon and stars, when in Revelation, what does it mean? It's a picture, it's a type, but you go back to Genesis, where Joseph had a dream, and the sun, moon and stars, Joseph's mother and father and his brothers, bowed down before him. So, the interpretation of that, it goes back to a literal, factual event, where you can identify what that means. And another one is when it says in Revelation 20 that the Bible speaks of a thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Well, some people say, oh, it's just allegory. It doesn't actually mean there will be a thousand-year rule and reign. Guess what? If we take it literally, and there's no reason not to, there will be a thousand-year rule and reign. Does that make sense? So, if there's no compelling reason to interpret it otherwise, you take it literally. Now, there's two reasons why a literal interpretation of Scripture is the best way to view Scripture. Now, first, philosophically, the purpose of language itself requires that we interpret words literally. Language was given by God for the purpose of being able to communicate. Words are like vessels of meaning, as someone said. If you take away the obvious literal meaning, then they can mean anything but the literal meaning. 
So if I asked one of you to please make me a cup of tea, then it could mean anything else but make me a cup of tea. Because that's what allegory does. And so what have I just asked you to do? You might make my bed. I don't know what you're going to do. You might pour hot water all over me. I don't know. (laughs) But you see, if you can't take it literally, or if you choose not to take it literally, then it can mean whatever you want. So the same is true for Bible prophecy. And unfortunately, a lot of people say, oh, it's all allegory. You can't take it literally. Well, I believe that if you're going to be consistent, you need to take it literally. Now, the second reason to interpret all Scripture as literal is a biblical one. Every prophecy about the first coming of Jesus in the Old Testament was fulfilled literally. So I'll say that again. Every, that's every prophecy about the first coming of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament was fulfilled literally. Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection all occurred exactly or literally just as the Old Testament predicted. The prophecies were literal. For example, the virgin birth was literal. Jesus was actually born of a literal virgin woman, okay? She was literally a virgin. There is no non-literal fulfillment of messianic prophecies in the New Testament that relate to the first coming of Christ. So, given that, would you consider it wise to then turn around and say that the prophecies concerning the second coming of Christ won't be fulfilled literally? It doesn't make sense, does it? So, the literal fulfillment of all the messianic prophecies concerning the first coming of Christ points strongly or argues strongly that the literal method of interpretation should be used to interpret the other prophecies in the Bible, especially the second coming of Christ and the book of Revelation and things about that. So, if you think about this, if a literal interpretation is not used in studying the scriptures, there is no objective standard by which to understand the Bible. Each person would be able to interpret the Bible as he saw fit. And Bible interpretation would devolve into what this passage means to me. What's the spiritual meaning behind this? What can I get from this? And that's basically what a lot of people do today. And those who don't take the Bible literally are generally the ones who deny the seven-year tribulation period and the thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ, even though they are clearly described in various places in the Bible. And it's because they start with this foundation of having an allegorical method of interpreting the scriptures, especially prophecy. So basically they're saying that all the stuff that's written in Revelation has very little or no historical or factual connection. It just has a spiritual meaning. So, for those reasons I've just mentioned, I disagree with the allegorical method of interpreting the scriptures, especially prophecy. However, this is not a reason to break fellowship with another Christian. There will always be differences in end times theology. We just have to learn to agree to disagree. There are godly, learned men in, or theologians in both camps. They both love the Lord, and they argue fervently for their own point of view but they just disagree. 
we learn to learn to disagree. This is not a salvation issue. So the first distinctive or characteristic of this dispensational theology or the way we look at the Bible or interpret the Bible is that we take the Bible literally where we can. Now the second main distinctive or characteristic of dispensational theology teaches that there are two distinct peoples of God. There's Israel and then there's the church. So I believe, and if you follow use a dispensational way of interpreting the Bible, there's always been Israel and now there is the church. But Israel is still there. God is still going to use Israel. Also, as a dispensationalist, we also believe that salvation has always been through grace, through faith alone. In God in the Old Testament and specifically in God the Son in the New Testament. So this is really important that we understand that the church has not replaced Israel in God's program. And that's a teaching that's called replacement theology. So if you hear some talking about replacement theology, it's, a, I believe, a false doctrine where they believe that the blessings that were given to Abraham and to the nation of Israel are now transferred or have been transferred to the church and they are kind of spiritually given to them. They spiritualize those blessings, those physical blessings, and say, oh, the church is being blessed. I don't believe that's true. I think God is still going to keep those promises. And the Bible says, and what we're going to learn as we go through Revelation, is that in the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, all those promises given to Abraham will finally find their fulfillment. They will finally be completely fulfilled, literally fulfilled. So at the moment, God is using the church to work in the world, but he's going to remove the church and then he's going to bring Israel back into the land. And guess what? He's already done that and he's doing that. But he's going to raise up some evangelists, actually quite a few of them, and they're going to go out into the world during the tribulation period. They will replace the church because the church is gone. Now, People will say, well, does the Bible say that God is going to keep working with Israel? Well, let's just look at one passage. Jeremiah 31, 35 through to 37. It is the Lord who provides the sun to light the day, and the moon and stars to light the night, and who stirs the sea into roaring waves. His name is the Lord of heaven's armies, and this is what he says. I am as likely to reject my people Israel, as I am to abolish the laws of nature. So God has just been talking about the laws of nature, the moon, the stars by night, sun by day, etc. And he says, I am, in verse 36, I am as likely to reject my people Israel, as I am to abolish the laws of nature. Look around. Has God abolished the laws of nature? Is gravity still working? Mm-hmm. Okay, so has God rejected his people Israel? <laughs> Obviously not, okay. Unless you allegorize this, and it can mean whatever you want. All right, verse 37 in Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what the Lord says, Just as the heavens cannot be measured, and the foundations of the earth cannot be explored, so I will not consider 
casting them away for the evil they have done. I, the Lord, have spoken. So, people say, a common objection, Oh, but Israel, they rejected the Messiah. They've been so unfaithful. How can God continue to use them? If I was God, I'd reject them. That's what some people say. And maybe I would too. In my humanity, looking at how much of a failure they were. But that's not how God thinks. Okay? Can the heavens be measured? Has anyone been able to measure the heavens? No. And so in the same way, God will never consider casting his people away for the evil they have done. God recognizes that they are evil, evil, stubborn, rebellious people, but he's not even going to consider casting them away. I, the Lord, have spoken. So this is in contrast to those who interpret the scriptures, especially prophecy, allegorically, because they don't take literally all the passages where God specifically promises to never forsake Israel. No matter how much Israel disobeys, they assume that the church has replaced Israel and that the promises given to God's chosen nation, Israel, have been transferred to the church, usually in a spiritual or allegorical sense. So now we're going to get into the actual dispensations and the different ways that God has dealt with man and is dealing with man. So there's seven main ages or periods of time. The first one is innocence. And these are on the back of your chart there if you want to read along. So innocence. God made a perfect world. He started with creation and Adam and Eve. And this period of innocence finished at the fall when man sinned and God kicked them out of the garden. And that covers Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through to Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. The next period or dispensation is conscience. It's called conscience. And this started with Cain and Abel and ended at the flood. And that covers the scriptures from, or the period of time talked in the scriptures by Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 to Genesis 8 verse 22. We're going to go through each one of these in a minute in more detail. Then the next one is human government. So, This started after the flood with Noah. God gave Noah the basis for human government. And that period of time ended at the Tower of Babel. And that's Genesis chapter 9 verse 1 through to Genesis 11 verse 32. Then the next period of time or the next dispensation, the next different way that God used to talk to men is called promise. And that's because God gave promises to Abraham. And that time period continued all the way through to Moses. So that's Genesis 12, 1 through to Exodus 19, 25. And then the next dispensation or time period is the law. And you probably know that God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. And that time period continued right on until the cross, until Jesus died and rose again and established the church. So that basically takes all the scriptures from Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, right through to Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And then we have the church age. And that started on the day of Pentecost, and it will finish when the rapture happens, when the church is taken up. And so that's Acts chapter 2, verse 4, right through to Revelation chapter 20, verse 3. And then you have the millennial reign, the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, 
So it starts kind of during the tribulation period, and we'll see why later, when Jesus takes possession of the earth at his second coming and finishes at the great white throne judgment. And that covers the, basically the rest of Revelation. And then you've got the new heavens and the new earth. So I want to point out that these dispensations are not different ways or paths to salvation, but different ways in which God relates to man. Now, this dispensation includes a recognizable pattern of how God worked with people living in that time period or dispensation. So the pattern is, and you'll find this later, man's responsibility and then man's failure, God's judgment and then God's grace. And so that's man's responsibility. God gives man something to do. Man fails in every dispensation. Man fails. God judges them, but he also shows grace. And we'll see how this works out for each of those time periods as we go through. It's quite interesting. So, to summarize, dispensationalism, this way of interpreting the Bible, it's a theological system that emphasizes the literal interpretation of Bible prophecy. It recognizes that Israel and the church are different, and it organized the Bible into these dispensations of periods of time where God worked in different ways as he operated in the world. So. I want to focus in now on the fact that God saves people the same way in every dispensation. How did he save people? How does he save people? It's through faith. Well done. Yep. God has always saved man through faith. So during each of these seven dispensations, God establishes his relationship with human beings based upon grace through faith without any contribution of human merit, works, or self-effort. So I just put this verse up. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And from the New Living Translation it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. So, how does God save people? Well, in other words, God reveals his grace to man in whatever way he chooses. He creates faith in the heart of man and thereby brings him into eternal salvation. And this is how everybody was, is, and will be saved. Simply by responding to God's grace and the provision of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross. But some might say, hang on a second, what about the Mosaic dispensation when the law was given? Didn't man have to keep the law? That's a good question. Well, God used the law to show the sinfulness and depravity of man, but he never used the law to justify someone or to save someone. I mean, can you tell me one person who was saved by keeping the law. One perfect person in the Bible. You won't find a single person in the Bible who was perfect and was therefore declared righteous because they kept the law perfectly. Now, even under the law, the just live by faith. And this is a famous verse, and this is the heart of the Reformation, what we spoke about a few weeks ago. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. So we will live by faith. Okay? 
We live, we are born again, we are brought into God's kingdom by faith. So we're going to come back to that when we get into the dispensation of law, that period of time with law. So now we're going to go through each of the dispensations individually and explain them, and, and that'll be it. So innocence, the first one. Have a look at the chart. It's the first one. We call the first dispensation innocence because man was created and placed in the Garden of Eden without the presence of sin. It was perfect. Now, he was not compelled or forced to sin, but after he was tempted by the serpent, by his own free will, he chose to trust Satan instead of God, and as a result, he sinned. And we know this as the fall of man. So this period called innocence ended with man being expelled from the Garden of Eden and God cursing the earth. And you can read about that in Genesis 3, 17 through 24. Then what God did is he killed animals to create clothing for Adam and Eve, animal skin clothing. And God was showing that without the shedding of innocent blood, there can be no covering for the shameful sin of man. So here we go. Here's those four points that we find in each of these periods of time. So man's responsibility. What did God say? What was the rule? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was man's failure? They disobeyed and they did eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was God's judgment? Well, he expelled them from the garden. It's spiritual separation from God. The earth was cursed and their bodies started dying. Now, what was God's grace? God killed an animal for the first time. It was the first animal death. And he clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins. And this symbolized that God would make a way for them to become righteous again. And this would happen by God providing a willing sacrifice that would take the punishment for their sins. So in other words, God would punish sin without punishing the sinner. And it's the first, very first picture of Christ being the substitute lamb sacrificed in our place. So this was a hope of redemption, the promise of a coming saviour. So we go to the next one, which is conscience. It's like moral responsibility, and it started after the fall. So now man is like God in that they know good and they know evil. And now they have to choose good or evil. They can choose to follow God and trust God, or they can choose not to. Okay, They know what good and evil is. So... God, we read with Cain and Abel that God also initiated the practice of blood sacrifices, the killing of a lamb in anticipation of the coming sacrifice of the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And once again, we know that man fell short of God's glory during this time. And what happened? The flood. So I'm just going to read a bit from Genesis to explain what happened. It's Genesis 6, 5 to 8. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing 
All the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. Verse 8 is really important. But Noah found favor or grace with the Lord. So here are our four points. Man's responsibility was choose to do what is right because they have the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a great verse that helps us to understand that. It's Genesis 4-7. And God is talking to Cain. You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. So that was the choice that they had, man's responsibility to choose to do what is right. Now, man's failure, as we read before, they disobeyed and rebelled against God. The judgment was, of course, the flood. They all died, except in God's grace he saved eight people. Eight is a number of new beginnings, and the ark is a picture of our salvation. We go through the door. Jesus is the door, and the ark had how many doors? One door. So you can go into the ark, and it's a fabulous picture of salvation. And that verse there is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. When once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now we go to the next one, the next dispensation or time period, and that's human government. Because it describes the delegation of God's authority to man in the form of government. So there was no government before the flood. We live with governments all around us, but there was no government before the flood. So through civil government, God instituted a structured relationship between men. And the government's most important function is the protection of human life. Now, you look at government today, and we're not doing that very well. And I'll just read from Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And this is basically this whole thing of government. And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. So it's up to us to govern ourselves, God has given us that mandate and the main thing that he wants is to protect human life. And uh, as I said, we're not doing a very good job. There's a huge number of babies that have been murdered. It's in the hundreds of millions. Now, so basically now in this dispensation, choosing right or wrong would no longer be decided only by our choices. God has given government the authority to enforce righteousness. And that's what we experience today, even. So Romans 13, 1 and 2, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. It says that black and white. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. 
Now, this dispensation ended as man, under the leadership of Nimrod, boldly attempted to upset God as king of heaven. And you read that in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And then God looked down and he sees that all these people are working together to purposely rebel against him. And they're building this massive tower, the Tower of Babel. And he says, you know what? We're going to have to disperse these people. Now, human government. What's man's responsibility? Well, God gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the man's responsibility, what was the command that he gave them in that dispensation? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What was man's failure? They did exactly the opposite. The only thing that God asked them to do was to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth, spread out. So man's failure was they rebelled against God and refused to spread out. They said, we're not going to be spread out. Genesis 11.4 says, Then they said, Come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered over all the world. They wanted to keep themselves together. Exactly the opposite of what God wanted. And then, God's judgment was the scattering of the people around the world when God confused their language. And if you read that in Genesis 11, 7-8, he says, Come, let us go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building the city. And then there's God's grace. We have the rainbow, symbolizing God's covenant of grace with mankind that he will never destroy the earth with a flood again, even though they deserved it. So at this time, God could have just wiped them out again. But he'd given the covenant of the rainbow, which is, no, I won't destroy with water again. And so in his mercy, he just kind of spread them out, and that was his thing. Now, in the book of Revelation, it comes back to Babel. It comes back to Babylon. Mystery Babylon is an economic system and it's a religious system. Okay, so Babylon comes back to here with this guy Nimrod. And he started this, I won't get into it now, but he started this mystery religion, mystery Babylon religion. And it's also the start of the economic way of doing things. Okay, but that's for later. So the next one is promise. So the fourth dispensation is, or fourth period of time, is the era of promise. And Abraham, the promise word comes from the amazing unconditional promises given to Abraham and the nation of Israel, primarily. Some affect us too, like through your seed all the nations will be blessed. That includes us. So God promised Abraham that his name would be great, that he would be the father of a great nation, that all nations would be blessed through him, and that he would be the recipient of the whole land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. Now, how long is everlasting? Forever, yes. So the promise of the land, it actually goes right to the Euphrates River. It's not just that little bit of land. The promise of the land has never been completely fulfilled by the nation of Israel. Abraham's physical descendants through Isaac and Jacob. Okay, Abraham never received it. 
God promised it to him, but he never received it. Isaac never received it. Jacob never received it. Most of the children of Israel never received it. They almost got there under David and Solomon, but not quite. God has promised to bring them back into the land and to fulfill this promise. God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. So, we come back to our four points. Man's responsibility. Abraham was commanded to leave his home land, Ur in the Chaldees, and then dwell or live in the land of Canaan, Genesis 12.1. Their failure. Abraham and Isaac both went to Egypt to escape hard times, and they shouldn't have gone there. They disobeyed God. And Jacob went there because of what his sons did to Joseph, selling him as a slave. So, what's the judgment? Well, they became slaves in Egypt. But that wasn't the end of the story. God still showed grace. God used the experience of slavery in Egypt to make them a great nation. He delivered them from slavery after that. So their sin could not prevent God's promises from being fulfilled. And also there was a promise of the coming Messiah in the picture or type of the Passover. And there was also Abraham's amazing sacrifice of his son, where God asked him to sacrifice his son and then provided the lamb. So we come to the law. So how many is that? We're up to one, two, three, four. The fifth dispensation, okay? So we're moving through history. And the law was roughly, what, 1500 BC? So the law is called the law because God gave the law to Israel through the prophet Moses. Now, what was the law? Well, it promised physical blessings to the nation of Israel like Rain, financial prosperity, good food, lots of kids, good health, victory of their enemies, all that kind of stuff. However, if the nation disobeyed, there were specific curses like drought, famine, disease, poor health, poverty, defeat, death, and finally, exile. They would be taken away from the land. So, why was the law given? This is interesting. Well, The law teaches the absolute holiness of God, the perfection of God. And in doing so, it reveals the exceeding wickedness of sin. It teaches the importance of submission to God's will. It demonstrates the universality of man's failure. And it also shows the goodness of God's grace. And it also reveals the importance of God's covenant people to God. So here's a verse that helps explain God's relationship with the nation of Israel. It's Exodus 19, 5 and 6. It says, Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Now, there's an important question we need to ask ourselves. Did the law replace the promises given to Abraham? Did the law replace the promises given to Abraham? Well, no. The law did not change anything about the promises of God to Abraham. So if the law didn't replace the promises, why did God give the law? 
Well, Galatians 3.19 gives us the answer. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise. So the two things existed at the same time. So it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Who's that? Jesus, yeah. So God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. So that was Galatians 3.19. So the first thing to notice there, it was given alongside the promises. The promises were still intact, they were unconditional, and there was still the way to salvation. And how was Abraham saved? What was the promise? Genesis 15.6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And Habakkuk, he wrote during this time of the dispensation of law, the time between Moses and the cross, and he said, the just shall live by faith. So the law was just a tool to show people their sins. And today we still use the moral law of God when witnessing to help people see how sinful they are and therefore understand their need for God's forgiveness. And the other thing I want you to notice is that the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. So again, dispensations. There's a period of time where this is true and it's relevant and then it becomes obsolete. So the promised saviour or seed or child is of course Jesus. And the law as a system of commandments and regulations was only to be in effect until the time Jesus came to earth and fulfilled it. He's the only one. He could do it. He's the only perfect person. Acts 15 says that there's no point in us trying to keep the law because we can't and we don't have to. We are under the new covenant now, the age of grace, which is the next dispensation, Okay, the next age, the next way that God reveals himself and works through men. So the law represents the old covenant, where the person was required to keep all the sacrificial, cultural and moral laws. But now that Jesus has come, we are no longer required to keep the ceremonial and cultural aspects of the law. We don't have to anymore. It's gone. And that's why it's really important to understand that when one dispensation finishes, another one starts. So for the new covenant to begin, the old covenant had to end. Okay. So consider these two verses here. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This covenant is not of written laws, that is, the old law, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And Hebrews makes it really clear. Hebrews 8, 13, it says, When God speaks of a new covenant, covenant it means he has made the first one obsolete it is now out of date and will soon disappear and what he's referring to there is that the temple at the time of this was written it was still standing but when the temple disappeared no more sacrifices it was gone it was out of date because jesus had already died he'd already kept it we didn't have to do it anymore the sacrifice had been made the once and for all sacrifice once for all time. There didn't need to be sacrifices anymore. So, let's look at our four questions again. What was man's responsibility? 
Well, the nation of Israel promised to keep every part of the law perfectly. Exodus 24.7 Then Moses took the book of the covenant and read it aloud to the people. Again, they all responded, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. <laughs> they said that like three times in, in different places. That's a ceremonial, religious law, cultural laws. You know, don't wear clothes with mixed fabric like, you know, wool and cotton and stuff like that. So the law is made of the cultural laws, the ceremonial laws, and the moral law. So they said, we will obey. Now, man's failure, the second point, <laughs> it didn't take them long. If you read Exodus 32, Moses went back up to the mountain to get more of what God wanted to speak to him, and the people made a golden calf, and they're running around naked partying. So it's <laughs> it just didn't take long for them to break their promise, did it? What did they say in um, Exodus chapter 24? We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will obey. But of course, in their flesh, in their human nature, they could not. It's impossible. So even if Moses is still receiving the Lord, they're still... They still disobeyed, already disobeyed. Now, God's judgment, all the curses written in the law came upon the nation of Israel, just like God promised. They were defeated by the enemies and taken captive to foreign lands. They suffered badly. God's grace, how did God show grace? Well, there was always a remnant. God never completely destroyed them, but rather showed mercy and saved some so that he might keep his promise in the thousand-year millennial kingdom. And that's what God has done. It's a miracle that Israeli culture, the Jewish culture, has been sustained and kept alive over 2,000 years of being dispersed among the Gentile nations. And now, just as God promised in 1948, he brought them back. Uh, Isaiah 11.11 11 says he will bring them back for the second time. So the first time was after the Babylonian captivity. The second time is now. As I said before, we're living in amazing times. We're seeing biblical prophecy come true before our very eyes. And it's happening, literally. <laughs> All right, now we come to the age of grace, which we've already started talking about, as we were talking about the age of law. So the church age, the age of grace is the church age, and it begins in the book of Acts with the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came upon people came into people and empowered them to be witnesses to all the world. So what's the church built on? It's built on Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 15 to 18. And as we're baptized by the Holy Spirit, we're placed into the church where there is salvation, the forgiveness of sins. And how are we saved in this era? Well, it's the same as the others. Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus' complete work on the cross. But we're looking back to the cross, not looking forward to the cross. That's the difference for us. And we have the Holy Spirit in us. That's a very different thing. In Colossians, it talks about Christ in you as being the mystery, something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. It was new, something that was new, only revealed in the New Testament for the church. Again, 
God deals differently in different time periods. Now, this will end, the church age will end when Jesus comes back in the clouds to snatch away his church at the rapture. The great snatch. Remember the word harpizo, it talks about a pickpocket. You know, a pickpocket takes your wallet without you realizing. So God's going to take the church without people realizing, like they won't be blowing an audible trumpet and people go, Oh, it's the rapture now. No, people just disappear. They go, oh, where'd they go? <laughs> and it'll happen in a split second. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, in the twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound, and that word twinkling of an eye is atom. You can't get a smaller breakdown of anything than one atom. And so in the smallest period of time, that's how quick it will be. Pretty cool, eh? Up we go. So, let's go through our four points. What's man's responsibility? We are Christ's ambassadors. We have been given as a church the message of reconciliation. That is, God is pleading through us to be reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus. And that's a summary of 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. But I will read Matthew 28, 19-20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we would call it dispensation. That's just a technical name that we use for that. Now, what was man's failure? Well, we speak, but people don't listen. People refuse to listen to God's plea that they might be saved. Now, why? Well, it says in John three eighteen to 19 There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, Jesus, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. Now, we move on to the next point there, which is God's judgment. Well, the unsaved, including the apostate church, which is all the false converts, the people who say they're Christians, but they're not, they'll go along with the rest of the world, the unsaved, unbelieving world, into the tribulation period. Not nice. You don't want to be there. As we get into it, you'll see it's going to be a terrible, terrible time. This is the time called Jacob's trouble in the Bible. So not only will the world suffer, but Israel is going to be refined, purified, but it's going to be a tough process. Two-thirds of them will perish. And one-third, God will take through. It's God pouring out his wrath on a generally unbelieving world. So there's two purposes in the tribulation, as we'll see. God demonstrates grace in this period at the end of this age, when he sends out 144,000 Israeli evangelists, especially prepared and sealed by God. He sends out angels fly around, sharing the gospel, and the two very special witnesses who will prophesy from Jerusalem for the first three and a half years, and they shut up heaven so it doesn't rain, and they do plagues and all that kind of stuff, turn water to blood. It's going to be very clear what your choices are in that time. It's very difficult to live in that time, but you're very clear 
So that's God's grace. He will give people a chance to repent. If you repent, most likely you're going to be martyred, killed. But at least you'll go to heaven and not to eternal damnation. So the tribulation is working with Israel. God works with Israel again. God sends his people out, the nation of Israel, to witness to the world. It's not the church. It's 144,000 Israeli evangelists, 12,000 from each tribe. We'll get there soon, in a few weeks. And then, as I said, God uses Israel. The church is not there. Now, we come to the last one, the millennial kingdom. So the seventh and final dispensation or period of earth history is called the millennial kingdom. So Jesus, along with his kingdom of Jewish and Gentile kings, will reign in righteousness over all the earth. And there's a multitude of verses that talk about this, not just from the New Testament, from the Old Testament too. And the millennial kingdom is entirely future. We can look back on all these other dispensations, all these other agents say, yep, I've read about that, I've seen that, I've read about that, I've seen that, you know, these people lived that to that time. But this one is future. It's the only one that is completely future from our perspective. Now, what will happen in the millennium, in the thousand years, in the millennial kingdom? Well, the gospel of peace will be declared everywhere and there will be worldwide recognition of Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace and Lord of all. His greatness will reach the ends of the earth, and Jesus will literally rule the entire world with the rod of iron, meaning that he will have complete and total control. So this is going to be a true theocratic government where God rules on earth. The only thing that he will not control is the free choice that people have to choose or reject Jesus as being their king of accepting his gift of forgiveness. Will they submit to him as king or not? And that's the same choice we have today. Are we willing to give up our sin or not? Now, who's going to go into the millennial kingdom? That's an interesting question. Well, there's going to be two groups of people. The first group of people are those who receive their glorified body. And the second group of people are those who haven't received their glorified body. So basically the first group of people have already either died or been raptured and they get their resurrection body, their glorified immortal body. So included in this group is us, the church, will be taken up to heaven prior to the tribulation. It will include the tribulation saints who were killed during the tribulation. And it will include the Old Testament saints who put their faith in God. We all will have received our resurrection bodies by that time. We'll be like the angels. We won't be getting married and having kids. Remember what Jesus said about the angels in heaven? They don't get married and have kids. We'll be like the angels. We won't be angels, we'll be like the angels in that sense. Instead, we will have special responsibilities that are in line with our faithfulness now. So the more responsible we are, the more faithful we are now, then the more responsibility and reward we get then. So it's really important because this millennial kingdom is real. 
It's not just an allegory, it's real. And there's lots of parables and stuff that Jesus gives. The more responsible, the more faithful we are now with what God has given us, then the more responsibility and privilege will be given then. That's our kind of reward. So we need to really think of our future. We need to think of what's coming. Now the second group of people are those without their glorified bodies. They've still got their human bodies like we do now, flesh and blood. And they are the ones who survive the tribulation and they are saved. Now this includes the Jews, the ones that Jesus brings through and protects. He brings through the tribulation and he protects them at Petra. As well as the believing Gentiles who survived the tribulation. So there's this sheep and goat judgment that's described in Matthew 25, 32 to 46. At the end of the great tribulation, all the Gentiles are gathered together and those who believe are put on the right and those who don't believe are put on the left. The people on the right are called the sheep and the people on the left are called the goats. The goats are the ones who did not believe, who did not submit to God, who took the mark of the beast. And they will be cast into hell. And the people who did believe, what's the reward? They get to go into the millennial reign, the thousand-year millennial reign. So in the millennial reign, you're going to have people with glorified bodies living and working alongside people with natural bodies. Interesting, eh? And those people with natural bodies, they'll be getting married and they'll be having kids. So everyone at the start of the millennial reign will be a child of God. They will be a believer. But they will have kids and their kids will have to make up their own mind. Once again, God gives them a choice. So in the millennial kingdom, what's the choice? Choose to respond to Jesus' gift of eternal life and forgiveness or not. What's man's failure? In spite of a perfect climate, all wildlife tamed, worldwide peace, and Jesus Christ ruling from Jerusalem with perfect righteousness, everything's going to be great. There will still be people who will be born during the millennial kingdom, that will choose not to receive the free gift of salvation in Christ. They will choose not to submit to Christ. And so God's judgment in the Old Testament indicates that they will die, those who don't believe, they will die at age 100. They will go to hell. And then be judged at the great white throne judgment along with all the other unbelievers. And then they will be cast in the lake of fire. And also at the end of the thousand year millennial reign, those who are born in that last hundred years and who don't believe, they will join Satan when he is released because Satan is locked up for this thousand years. And there will be one last battle. They will surround the holy city of Jerusalem and then God will send fire from the sky. He'll just destroy them just like that. (laughs) Very anticlimactic. And they all again go to hell. And then at the end of the millennial kingdom there's a great white throne judgment and so all unbelievers resurrect and are judged and sent to the lake of fire now what's the grace part what's god's grace well those born in the millennial kingdom who do choose to accept god's pardon his gift of forgiveness 
will receive their resurrection bodies at the end of the millennial kingdom and enter eternal life. The new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem coming down. So that's our seven dispensations. That's our seven periods of time where God worked in different ways through different means. But the same message, the same way of getting saved is God has done it for you. You need substitute. You can't do it yourself. You need to trust in God's substitute. You need to accept that God paid your fine on your behalf. And of course, we know that substitute is Jesus. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the way you have revealed yourself in so many different ways. And it's just amazing looking back and seeing how you revealed yourself in really seven different ways through history and every opportunity you give a man to be responsible, guess what? We've failed. But Lord, you keep on showing grace. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that your promises never fail. We thank you, Lord, that right from the beginning, you killed an animal, probably a sheep, a lamb, and you made skins for Adam and Eve to cover them. And Lord, as the picture develops, as a type develops through the scriptures, we come to the cross and we realize that Jesus is our lamb. He is our perfect lamb who took our sins and paid our price. He took my sins and my price. All my sins, past, present and future. And so now I am declared innocent. I am justified. I am not guilty. There is now no condemnation for me or anyone else who puts their trust in the Saviour and accepts God's gift of pardon. So I thank you, Father, for this amazing gift that you've given us. I thank you for the way you continue to give us opportunities to repent and to continue to share the messaging. Work with you to bring other people into your kingdom. So we just pray all these things and give us understanding, we pray. Lord, help us to understand your Bible correctly, to interpret it literally. And Lord, that we can understand that your promises to Israel are forever and that Israel and the church are different. We just commit all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.